Look at that eye, Fletch. Doctor's coming in. The doctor is here. Howard Foster. Now they're seeing whether he can actually see out of that eye. This is a huge moment in the career of Joe Joyce. And he is going to be allowed for now to carry on, Richie, but he can't have much more time in there. No, he's just got to go for it now, Joe Joyce. All or nothing now, because that eye is not going to be able to take much more damage. How long will Howard Foster let it go? That's the big question here. And again, he's getting caught left, right and centre with that left hand from Zhang. Again, the movement's a little bit more to the right. He's moving on to that shot. Got to move to his left. Too static and getting caught with that straight left hand every time. And Howard Foster's now having another look. Here comes the doctor again for the second time in round six. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where the juggernaut got run off the road somewhat unexpectedly. Um, apart from if you're me, where I had a cheeky bet at 13 to 2 that that Zhang would stop Joyce. Now, do I have any idea why I chose that? No. But my instincts were telling me that A, that was the best value, and B, we might be in for a surprise. But one thing I do want to talk about is the reaction to Joe Joyce losing. Let's, let's start with the end and work backwards, right? I generally don't respect tweeters who do a 180 on their view on a fighter based on one defeat. So a lot of people were calling Joe Joyce a hype job. They were saying that, you know, his record was, you know, it was hollow. They were making fun of the assertions that he'd beat Joshua, that he'd give Fury a hard fight. And they all made fun of Joe. And I don't respect people like that. And the reason I don't respect people like that is, you see, guys who say stuff like that have never been in a fight in their life. The people who type tweets like that are the kind of people who will instigate fights between people they want to see, but will never get involved themselves. They, they, they're the people who don't have the courage to put themselves in harm's way. You know, professional and eternal critics, but never participants in anything. And it's hard to respect people. It's not, let me repeat this. It's not saying you can't comment if you've never been in the ring before. That's not what people are saying. What people are saying is if you've never had to overcome, if you've never had to put yourself in harm's way, if when presented with difficult options, you've always taken the soft option, you're probably one of those people who's going to type, Joe Joyce was a hype job. I knew this was all just a hoax and that sort of thing. And it's really, really unfair, and it's, it's in bad form. Because if we really break this down, if we look at what we face with here, right? Let's go back 12 months and, go f and let's inch forward. When Gilles Zhang fought Philip Hergovic, the consensus view of people in the sport and around the sport was Zhang was robbed. 
Not, not that it was a close fight, nip and tuck, because Zhang was robbed, was the general view. He was, a, he was an easy winner. Remember, he also dropped Hergovic in the first round. So you've got to remember that. And had Zhilei Zhang won that fight, which he deserved to, he would have been mandatory for Alexander Usyk through the IBF route. So if Joe's mandatory through the WBO route, and Zhang would have been, they're roughly peers. So for me, Zhang Hergovic and Joyce are roughly peers. They're guys who should be able to fight each other, and whichever way you spin it, it's a competitive fight. So the point I'd make is Joe Joyce isn't fighting a soup can here. And instead of criticizing him and calling him a hype job, congratulate him, like we used to congratulate Dillian for putting himself in harm's way when he didn't have to. Joe could have sat on his interim title and had soft defense after soft defense. Wouldn't have been hard. He could have called people up. He could have fought anyone. I mean, he had, he had the world. He could have fought John Rice. He could have fought Michael Coffey. And you'd have understood it. But he chose Zhilei Zhang, a guy who is of comparable height and with a significant weight advantage. And not just fat weight. Like, he's a naturally big man. Not only that, but he has pedigree too. He had that pedigree. He had the Olympic silver medal. I think it was 2008. He had that Olympic silver medal. So you're really looking at a fight here between peers. Right? Between peers, right? If this was top trumps, they're roughly even. Zhang's got the advantage in skill. He's got the advantage in ring IQ because we've seen him make adjustments. We've seen him box tactical plans before. We just assumed Joyce would have too much physicality for him. And that's the backing the Brit bias, isn't it? We assumed Joe would be the bigger, well, not really the bigger guy, but the stronger guy, the fitter guy, the more relentless guy, the guy who would throw more shots. That was our working assumption. So if you'd have asked me 24 hours ago, what do I, how do I rate this fight? I would have said 55% Joe, 45% Zhang. Not much in it. It, it. it was always going to turn on who could get their tactical plan off first. And on such fine margins, things turned. Like, even before this fight, Zhile Zhang would have been a nightmare for Joshua. Yeah, no one's going to argue that point. No one would have argued that point a week ago. Zhile Zhang would have been a nightmare for Joshua. Had too much, too much resilience, too much size, too much strength, too much technique. You know, mindset solid. Doesn't give anything away. Would have been a nightmare for Joshua. So then the next question is, what would he have done against the other big two? I think he gives Fury a lot of problems. Being southpaw, being quite a loose puncher as well. I think he gives Fury some problems. I don't know if he beats him, but it's a, it's a competitive fight while it lasts. And against Wilder, same thing. If Wilder lands on him, we don't know what effect that would have. Being intriguing, that's for damn sure. But Zhang causes problems for everybody because of his, his size and his ability, to his mastery of who and what he is. He's not ever going to be an athletic, in-and-out sort of guy. He's not. He's, he's a big lump, and he bludgeons you. And he's mastered that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what boxing is. Boxing is when you combine who you really are with what you do. So instead of seeing this as a, as a 
Joe Joyce loss and relegating Joe down to the Joseph Parker, Christian Hammer level and saying, ah, he never deserved a world title shot. Instead of doing that, how about we celebrate the fact that Gilles Zhang's announced himself? Go back a couple of years. It was the big three. It was Joshua, Fury, Wilder. Then Dillian kind of flirted with it, so we had four. And we're like, okay, this is good. This is, this is going in the right direction. Then Joe announced himself as well. So then we had five names where we're like, we would pay to watch these guys all fight each other. And that didn't seem to happen. Now we've got Gilles Zhang announcing himself. Why are we not celebrating that? Why are we not saying, do you know what? The more the merrier. That's what we should be celebrating. Don't demote Joe. Be glad that we were able to elevate Zhang to that level where we're saying, I'd whack him in with Usyk. I'd whack him in with this guy. I'd whack him in with that guy. And we're going to have good fights regardless. Another thing we don't talk about is, has he opened up the Chinese market? Because you know Eddie Hearn will be looking at that going, I really hope Zhang can open up China. Don't, don't be surprised if you hear Hearn go, why can't Joshua fight Zhile Zhang in China? Because you don't need 20% penetration in China to make money. Not at all. You could probably get away with 1%. 1% at $20, and you're probably doing about 200 million quid in revenue anyway. So you're making money hand over fist in that sense. But overall, the good thing is we've got another name in the heavyweight division. We've got a new location, a potential new market. These are... These are things that help grow the sport. Let's celebrate that. And all those people criticizing Joe for losing to a guy who's quite good would be a nightmare for anyone at the top. And involved in a fight that Joe didn't have to be involved in. He took that risk. The very thing we've been saying boxers need to do. If you're, if you're serious about boxing, if you understand how this game is, you should be congratulating Joe for doing his best and saying, you know what, let him come back. He deserves to come back because what's Joe? Um, 15 and 1? And the only person who survived to the final bell was Brian Jennings. And that's, that, that was pure ring now, but on Brian Jennings' part. So let's, let's give both men credit for putting it on the line and for entertaining us. That's really the start and end of it. But inside of this whole story is trying to unpick what, what didn't go right for Joe. How did Joe end up in a position where he was getting stopped with his eye seemingly on the verge of being shattered? You know, the interesting thing is we often, when we see big events, we look for big causes, right? Plane crash, we assume it must have been something massive. But a lot of times, disasters come from the combination and the timing of a number of small things that individually all seem insignificant, but when, when brought together, spell disaster clearly. Now, I, I think it's, it's been known in boxing for a while that Joe struggles with southpaws. I'm going to explain why I think that is. If you look at Joe's amateur career, let's just go back 12, 12 or so years. Joe came up the box able to do a lot of what he does now. He was already big, he was already strong, he was already fit, he was athletic. Joe had done a number of different things. I think he had done like cheerleading, rugby, um, probably done football. He had done all these different sports, so he was athletic and he had proven himself. He had those capoeira skills as well. 
And so because he was like that, and it was a fallow period in the heavyweight division, this is kind of the post-Anthony Joshua bit. So Joe jumps in, and at the time the main names were guys like Domak and Lardy, Nick Webb, uh, Josh Qualey, Armin Issa, never know which way to say his name. Um, so there was a few of them, and Joe quickly established himself as the best of the bunch. But Joe got away with being Joe. No one could live with his work rate, his size, his strength. Joe got away with being Joe. That same approach carried him all the way to an Olympic silver medal. And I'm not saying that he didn't evolve and he didn't improve it, but the, the raw DNA was always there. It was never cultured. Joe was never a guy who started off, you know, looking elegant and then took this rugged style based on, you know, practical factors. That's not Joe. Joe Joyce is a guy who just bludgeons you. If that doesn't work, there's nothing else. The thing is, is it's always worked. So when it's always worked, you've never had to teach him how to really deal with things like a southpaw. Because southpaws are unique in the sense that they occupy different spaces and they like to throw different shots to orthodox fighters. So if you're not prepared for that psychologically and tactically, it's a problem because you will find yourself walking into traps that they set. And with every generation, Southpaws get more and more intelligent. You know, we've gone from, let's look at someone who's a classical, classic Southpaw, just off the top of my head, someone like a Winky Wright or Antonio Tava, real classic Southpaws. And then we've gone into the Manny Pacquiao era. And he, he, he rebuilt it. Rigondeaux, he helped rebuild it. Lomachenko's helped rebuild it. Usyk has also helped. And so the, the notion of a southpaw has evolved. The beautiful thing about Zhang was he's a classic southpaw. The other guys like Loma, Spence, and all these sorts of guys, and Crawford when he switches, they've done smaller tweaks where they incorporate some of the elements that work in orthodox fighting into being a southpaw. And I think that's been good for the development of of the sport, but Shang's a classic Southpaw. So there's quite basic things you should be comfortable with. And here's one thing I think boxing gets wrong. So most people who play team sports know the, the principle of shape work. So shape work is, if we take a rugby context, how, how do you receive a kickoff? Football context. How do you line up for a corner or an in-swinging free kick? And you'll do, you'll do rep after rep of that shape work. So you're always in the right position. You understand why you're there. You understand how everything fits together. And so that means that you can always make the right decision because you've got the wider tactical context in your head and you've got your individual obligations in your head too. Most team sports run shape drills. They're boring, but once, once you nail it, you never forget it. Boxing doesn't do shape work. It's rare that boxing does shape work. The Soviets do. Well, the Russians, I should say, not the Soviets. But the Soviet system was very big on shape work. The Cuban system is also very big on shape work. In Britain, we don't. And because of that, we're generally quite bad with southpaws because we don't understand shape and positioning and how we're supposed to be. And Joe fell into that trap. Joe's never been taught how to, to deal with southpaws. He's beaten them, but that's by being Joe. He's never really dismantled the southpaw. And so that's the root of all of this. 
Joe didn't know how to dismantle a southpaw, and dismantle was what he was going to have to do to Zhang. So you look at that and you go, but, but he had Ishmael Salas in his corner. If ever someone was going to understand this, it should be Ishmael Salas. And it's like, well, yeah, but Ishmael Salas isn't going to te teach a 37-year-old man in the space of a training camp how to dominate a southpaw who's more experienced than he is and has really mastered his craft. So that, that's, the, that, that's the sort of high-level thing. Joe was always going to struggle with a southpaw psychologically because that's kind of his, his demon. And that's okay. A lot of people struggle with southpaws. That's why a lot of people avoid them in their careers if they can. You just avoid southpaws. If Joshua could have avoided Usyk, he would have done for that exact reason. People who take to the sport late struggle with southpaws. But, look, we can do all this highfalutin talk and Stevie Bunce and all these guys have, have done that to death. There are two key moments for me that defined that fight, that defined the outcome of that fight. Maybe a third, but the two main ones were in that first round, about a minute 39, minute 38 into the round, maybe a bit less actually, maybe, maybe 10 seconds earlier. Trying to remember what the clock was saying. Gilles Zhang unleashes a sequence of three or four right hooks. A couple missed, a couple landed. One of them landed really well. And so he does that to Joe. And he did that to Joe at the point where Joe was trying to establish dominance on the left-hand side. And Gilles Zhang said, no, this door's closed. This is my space. He asserted his dominance over the lead foot side booming down right hooks and he kept doing that until Joe stopped moving that way and then Joe started to either hold his position or move to his own right hand side and Zhang was like that's okay and so anytime Joe tried to move from right to left Gilles Zhang was sort of jabbing not in a straight line but at an angle which forced Joe back out to his right so in that first round Gilles Zhang refused to let Joe establish any kind of foothold on the lead foot side Now, if you're just watching it as a fan, you're thinking, oh, this is a great fight. Oh, he's just hitting him. But he wasn't because the punches weren't meant to take Joe out. They were just meant to establish, Joe, you're not going to come this way. Anytime you step this way, there's a disincentive for you. And so that's, and that, that combined with that jab were done with the aim of establishing a mental pattern in Joe. They knew that Joe would struggle with the South Pole. So establish that mental pattern that said, Joe, you can't come this way. I know you feel comfortable here, like you've, you've uncorked some good left hooks on people, you've been able to dip to your left and unleash that left hook, none of that's happening today. And Zhang was determined to establish that pattern that you're not going to be able to get that left hook off today. My right hook dominates on this side. And I thought that was really, really clever. And then the second bit was when he staggered Joe, and I can't remember if it was the second or the third round, but he staggered Joe. And I remember at that point going, I think he just, he's let Joe Joyce know. Joe's not the, the bigger, stronger man in there. And from that point, the die was cast. And the die was cast because Joe now realizes he, he's behind tactically. And he's not going to dominate physically. And then at that point, Joe's like, I'm hoping he gets tired. If I'm transposing my thoughts, I'm like, I hope he gets tired because I can't keep up with this work and I can't keep having these shots. 
from the Zhang perspective, Zhang's like, sweet, I've established all the territory I need to do what I want to do. Yeah, once, once he did that and he created that mental pattern in Joe, where Joe's like, I can't go that way, I have to go the other way, Zhang was like, perfect, now I can do what I did in camp. And Joe's like, I'm in a position I wasn't in during my camp. What do I do? And you can see the confusion, because anytime Joe tried to, to you know, start off with a jab or anything like that, Zhang used it as a trigger point to re-establish dominance on that side. So Joe's then like, every time I jab, I'm getting countered. I'm not getting countered with single shots, I'm getting countered with multiple shots. And Joe's like, oh, this isn't, nothing's working. You could see in his body language, like nothing that normally works is working. Because what does Joe normally do? He bulldozes his opponents. They hit him, yeah, he takes it, but he gets in position to let his hands go. Zhang didn't allow that. Zhang's shots were heavy enough that he was able to go, no, 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 no. You're not going to come this way. My surprise was in the corner, the message wasn't getting through where it's like, Joe, you're going to have to fight your way onto that left-hand side, no matter what it takes, because the alternative is so much worse. I was surprised that that wasn't the message in the corner. Maybe they were confident that Joe could hold up until the latter rounds, and you could expect at the pace that Zhang set, he wasn't going to be able to do that in rounds 10, 11, 12, and then Joe could come on strong. But that's always risky against a guy who's as big and strong as Zhang. So, so all of this, you, 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 you're watching, and I was confident I was going to win my bet by round three, just because I couldn't see how Joe was going to get to Zhang. I, I tweeted something at this point, and I said, Joe doesn't know how to box small. At this point, Zhang is the bigger man in there. Joe doesn't know how to box small. He doesn't know how to slip shots, how to ride shots, how to roll under shots, how to dip. Joe doesn't do any of that stuff. And then I, I, I jokingly mentioned, we need Mexican Joe back, you know, Capoeira Joe, the guy who was doing all of that stuff against... Uh, who was the guy he did it? The guy that beat Dave Allen. Was it Lenroy Thomas? Or Lenroy Thompson? One of the two, I can't remember. But when Joe was doing all that kind of off-key, mad head movement, but that's what he needed. He needed something that was going to disrupt Zhang's rhythm, but instead he didn't. He gave Zhang a pretty static target after Zhang had established control. And so from that point, there's only so many heavy shots that a corner or referee will allow you to take before they, they have to save you from yourself. So all in all, in all you're looking, right? What, what was the plan? We're hearing stuff about Joe was meant to box at range, then wear him out. We're hearing that Joe was just going to sort of steamroller through him. Zhang wasn't going to allow any of that to happen. Definitely not in the first half of the fight. And in doing so, he gave us quite a compelling and entertaining fight. Um, do you criticize Joe Joyce's corner? No, because it's worked up until this point, and it's spectacularly worked. But sometimes you meet a nemesis, and I, I don't believe there's a version of Joe Joyce that beats Zhile Zhang. I just don't believe there is. Which isn't a disrespect to Joe. I think everyone has their nemesis. Everyone has that one person who's got a set of skills and attributes that you just can't figure out. I think everyone has that. Um, for Barrera, it was probably Pacquiao. For Pacquiao, it was probably Marquez, maybe even Floyd, more so Floyd. Um, Canelo, it might be Bivol. For Froch, it was Groves. Like people say Carl figured George out. He never quite figured George out. He, 
he ground him down the first time and then, you know, throw a punch from the gods the second time. But George felt like his nemesis in the same way George felt like DeGale's nemesis. And then I'd also argue that maybe DeGale's Foch's nemesis, but we never got to find that out. So everyone has a nemesis, a guy that they just can't, they can't figure out. And there's no shame in Joe having one who's of equal size, if not bigger, and of equal pedigree. There's no shame in that. So I don't expect you'll see the rematch, because I don't think Joe can make the adjustments needed to beat a Gilet Zhang. I think Zhang was smart in establishing control of the territory. I think he was smart in understanding that once he had got Joe domesticated, is the word I'd use, he could throw his backhand at will. So that backhand he was throwing could throw it three, four times in a row and it wasn't missing. Because Joe hasn't got that ability to ride shots, to block shots, to roll under, to slip, to slide. Because he's never had to do it. He's just been able to go through people. And I think Joe, that version of Joe could go through anyone. Just not Mr. Zhang, who proved that he does belong at world level. And we should give... Zhang and his team credit. So I think his trainer is Sean George. And that even before this fight was announced, they were always talking about the Hergovich fight, about this desire of never letting the judges adjudicate again. And they were true to their word. You know, George had Zhang loose. Like, people thought Zhang would get tired, but he wasn't really... He was punching so relaxed. He was almost like a Southpaw Huey Fury in certain moments. Like, that sweeping right hook was straight out of the, the Peter Fury training manual. Um, the deadly straight, like not 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 an overhand right, a straight right. No no special effects on it, just dead straight, and that tells you how easy he had it in there. He was just throwing really basic shots, and they were landing. So what did he do differently from the Hergovic fight? Number one, he majored on that right hook because I think the right hook's what dropped Hergovic, but he used it more as a weapon. And this time, what he was able to do was to mix up his attacks. So sometimes before he threw that right hook. He'd throw it like a left uppercut to the body to occupy Joe downstairs. Then the right hook would come over the top. And he just mixed the flavors of his punches a bit better than he did with Hergovic. I think with the Hergovic situation, he just tried to bomb him out of there without breaking him down. There was a lot more breaking down in this fight, which I think you've got to give Zhang credit for. And I think that's, that's testament to, to a good camp and a good training team. So I don't know. It's... Do I think this would have been an easier fight than the Hergovic fight? From a tactical perspective, no. I think Hergovic is more adaptable in the ring and it can make more changes. But I think Joe brought um, a bigger physical threat. And that's what Zhang had to cope with. And I think he diffused that masterfully. But here's, here's the thing. And I think this is the point that am, am, amplifies what I've been saying. At no point did you feel that Zhile Zhang was in trouble in that fight. He felt in total control of that fight and he felt, it just looked like he was doing what he wanted, when he wanted, without fearing what was coming back. That will hurt Joe, but you have to give a trainer credit. This was one in the small details. The ability to establish control of the geography of the fight. The ability to establish control of the psychology of the fight. And then with his combination, his punch picking, the ability to control the geometry of the fight. Zhang did all those things really, really well. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily think Joe can learn those things. I think it takes time. I think Joe now needs to understand that there are certain boxers, 
it's not a size thing. It's not a pedigree thing. It's a skills and attributes thing. There are certain guys that Joe will just walk through. But now he realizes there are other guys that he won't walk through. So you wouldn't want Wilder detonating a right hand on you like that. Because if, if Zhang can land, Wilder can land. And I think Wilder may be more explosive. Zhang, heavier puncher. Wilder, far more explosive and destructive. I think is how I would describe it. But overall, credit where credit's due. I thought both men gave us a compelling fight. That's what we wanted. Much with the yard Baturbia fight, yes, you know, both fights were really entertaining. I thought the Brits did okay. But at no point did you feel the winners were under any real threat of losing. So we're back in that position again. And we've almost got to look at, is there something missing in this British system that means that we're always going to be the plucky runner-up? All right, so what now? So what now for, for those guys? My main hope is that Joe's just got a black eye, some bruising, some swelling, and nothing's broken. And he just needs to heal physically, heal emotionally, because that will take a lot out of him. You know, like I said, I think that fight mirrors the sort of Dubois situation where you saw, in Dubois, you saw a guy who couldn't cope with Joe. And you saw a guy in Joe last night who couldn't cope with Gilles Zhang. And much like Dubois had to go on this sort of path of recovery and redemption, I hope Joe can just go on a period of reflection. Joe's an older guy. He's lived a bit more. He's done a bit more. So he can just come back. I don't think the juggernaut needs to reboot or retool or anything like that. I think he is what he is now, right? And if he can recover by August, September, why not just put him in? Give him a fun fight, man. Give him the Dillian White fight, for example. Give him a Joshua fight. Give him something that will be entertaining because Joe will entertain for absolute certain. Joe will entertain. Fury. We'd see him in with anyone and anyone who disagrees with that doesn't love the sport. So I think Joe's got options on the backside of this. I think Zhang's got options. But if I'm Zhilei Zhang, I'm going back to China for a fight. And I'm getting someone like a Carlos Takam over there. You know, let me go and test out the market, see what my, my real economic value is. Because he doesn't have to do anything till he fights Usyk now. And if you're Usyk, do you really want to fight Zhilei Zhang? Because whoever you fight now is Usyk, these camps are taking years off you. And Zhilei Zhang has the same stance you do. This would be a hard, hard fight, especially if Zhang's now going to the body. And I don't necessarily think Usyk likes body shots. So, yeah, I think Zhang just holds tight, ticks over until he gets his title shot, which he deserves. Um, would like to see Joyce back. I'd love to see Zhang box in this country again, actually. I think in the build-up, he's been an absolute credit to the sport. So I've thoroughly enjoyed, you know, being in that situation. So credit where credit's due, he's conducted himself well and he's increased his commercial appeal. What he showed as well, and I wish people would emphasize this more than anything else, he's shown that when the top guys fight, man, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. Defeats are not fatal. You know, Zhang was able to win this fight from the middle of the ring. When's the last time you saw someone dominate from the middle of the ring? The last time I saw that at a high level in the heavyweights was probably Ruiz Joshua 1, where Ruiz wasn't looking for the ropes. Zhang wasn't looking for the ropes. And he was able to control and win the fight comfortably. You know, things like that definitely, I mean, they restore my faith in the sport and they remind me that 
you know, there's some people in the sport who, who are superhuman. But here's what I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear any of this nonsense of Joe Joyce needs to change trainers, he needs to do this, he needs to do that. Jesus Christ, he's got Ishmael Salas, man. Like, where do you go after Ishmael Salas? People say, oh, what? if Joe was with Shane, this would have happened. No, no. Nah, you will play the cards you're dealt, mate. When you get Joe Joyce in your camp, Joe Joyce is Joe Joyce. That's all. And we saw that. Joe was Joe. Um, no trainer's going to fix that. I don't think Joe wants to change. I think he enjoys boxing the way he does. And I don't think he should change. He should just understand that some people are your nemesis. Move on. Stay with the same team that's got you this far because they're not bad. So, yeah, I don't want to hear any of that talk of, yeah, you need to change trainers. This happens so many times when people think they know better than a boxer. They have no idea what makes a good trainer. Absolutely none. That's why they get all these calls wrong all the time. They have no idea at all. I want to switch gears because you guys know I can't talk about, you know, what happened at the Copper Box. I'm talking about Denzel Bentley, who... Ah, oh, man. Ah, oh, man. That first round dismantling of Kieran Smith. Now, you can't read too much into it because we barely got 45 seconds into the fight. But I'll tell you what I did like about it. It's proof that all you technique kind of gurus out there who always preach about you need perfect technique. No, you don't. Technique is the most overcoached and overrated thing in boxing massively, because most people don't know anything else. They can't do anything else. So they, they overemphasize technique over the other things. So if you look at the, the finishing sequence, the first kind of chopping left hook that Denzel catches him with, he's in the wrong shape, in the wrong position. His feet are square on. It, when you look at the punch on impact, you know, the technique gurus would be moaning about that. Yeah, technically, absolute mess, right? But look at how much purchase he got on it. Look how much purchase he got on it. And then to able, you know, just to shift his body to then just sustain that attack. And, and this is a sign of how far Denzel's matured, and I love this. There was a point when he had him going, he's thrown a left hook, and old Denzel would have tried to, to shoot a big right hand straight to, to his head. Denzel's gone, no, 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 we're not going to do that yet. So he shoots that right hand to the chest to keep Kieran Smith up. So he can throw another left hook and a right hook. And that's what finished him off. And it's those little tweaks and that, that, that improvement in decision making that, if you remember the last interview I did with Denzel, I was pushing for. And it's come with maturity. Like it's come with him taking greater ownership of who he is in the ring and who he is as a boxer. And it was just, it was impressive. And I felt for Kieran Smith because I don't think Kieran Smith understood how hard Denzel hit. And a lot of him getting knocked out was the surprise factor of the force that Denzel could generate. Because I think he, he kind of took the first one and his brain was like, oh man, yeah, that's just, that's just a freak shot. And then that chopping right hook that Denzel threw, I was like, ah, no, 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 mate. You're, you're, you're going to go to sleep now. And I think his brain just checked out. And poor Kieran Smith, he will learn from that. You know, now he understands how hard a middleweight can hit. He'll learn from that. But as for Denzel, it's another fight for me that doesn't make sense. And it's, it makes me think that they're not trying to put money into him right now. Because you could be putting Denzel in with with those kind of fringe level guys at 160. You look, you could be calling out Liam Smith at 160. 
Why can't Denzel get a Liam Smith fight at 160? He's earned that. He's earned that. But you're talking about him fighting Hamza Shiraz. Now, number one, when they interviewed Hamza Shiraz, Hamza Shiraz looked like... I'm going to say he looked scared, but he, it looked like the size of the task was real to him now, where he was like, yeah, I'm going to have to get hit with those shots and overcome that to do my thing. And we've seen Hamza Shiraz get put down by guys who aren't Denzel Bentley. And I don't want to hear anyone in my tweets or comments talking about, yeah, but Shiraz is this tall, he's with Joe Goosen. I'm just telling you this. Hamza Shiraz hasn't got the punch resistance required to do 12 rounds with Denzel Bentley. That's it. I personally, my own opinion, Denzel doesn't need to fight Hamza Shiraz. Hamza Shiraz just has River Wilson bent on his record. He doesn't have a Brad Paul. He doesn't have a Linus Adofia. He doesn't have a Tyler Denny. He doesn't have a Sam Eggington. He doesn't, he doesn't have a, a name we can hang on. He, he hasn't been in with a Felix Cash. He hasn't been in with a Danny Dignam. So on what basis can we talk about these two guys fighting each other? Well, because Steve Bunce and Carl Frampton said, oh, this will be a huge fight further down the line. It won't be. No one knows who the hell Hamza Shiraz is. And if they did, they wouldn't care. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. He just hasn't earned that thing that Denzel has. Denzel's a guy that hasn't said no to Frank. Denzel's a guy that kept fans entertained in the pandemic. Denzel's the guy who went from small hall fighter pre-pandemic to now, when does this guy fight for a world title? When will he get his respect for doing that? When will people say, Denzel Bentley is how you manage a professional career? I put Dan Aziz in that category too, and to an extent Isaac Chamberlain in that category. Guys who never say no to fights, and when they show up, you know they're going to entertain. The disrespect of people in boxing to be putting Hamza Shiraz and Denzel Bentley in the same bucket simply to please promoters is disgusting. That, 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 that ass-kissing, that delusion is disgusting. And let me just say this for the record. I like Hamza Shiraz. I think he's built well. I think he's got good people around him. He's got a lot of that, that, that Tower Hamlets all the way through to Essex-type money behind him. Credit where credit's due. Hamza Shiraz hasn't got the names on his record. He hasn't got a Heffron. He hasn't got a, like I said earlier, he hasn't got a cash. I mean, he's barely got an Ashley Bailey Demetz on his record to be talking about fighting Denzel. And that's why he didn't speak with any confidence when they interviewed him. Because he realized he can't take those shots for 12 rounds. But from a Denzel perspective, I'm happy for him, proud of him. I just love the journey he's been on. Some of the things I like are the speed of his punches has gone up. The gap between shots has gone down. So this, he's just doing more. And like that version of Denzel, I think, is going to be hard to beat. Um, obviously the, the tactical and the decision-making capabilities will grow and develop over time. And, you know, that, that's what experience is. I just, as people know, I've got a fair degree of bias towards Denzel, but I think Denzel's a class act. I think he's a smart guy, great guy, great for boxing. 
he's the sort of guy you want to put a camera in front of and say, carry BT Boxing to wherever it needs to go. I thought his interview was good. Really interesting that he was really friendly, chi you know, chipper and all that sort of stuff. So they men mentioned Hamza Shiraz and his face hardened. And that's when you saw the Battersea in him come out when he was like, yeah, I'll fight him now. Because he's tired of that too. He wants his respect. And then there was a nice touch at the end where he shouted out his amateur coach, Steve Heiser. So I think Steve's on the mend now. So great to hear that, that Stevie Heiser's on the, on the mend. And credit to all the old Fisher boys who went down to visit him. So Denzel's amateur club was Fisher. Steve Heiser was his amateur coach for a long time. And lovely that in the heat of battle, he had the presence of mind to shout him out after everything he's been through. So I thought that was a class act. And, you know, everyone knows my views on Denzel. Um, I'm going to touch on Moses Atalma briefly. Went six rounds against the Ukrainian guy who, uh, whose name I don't remember. Um, I've, I've seen people kind of walking back from their assessment of Moses Atalma. But I'm like, that's an 18-year-old kid. You know, he, his maturation process has barely begun yet. When he hardens up and, you know, when he just... Just reps, man. Reps and working. That most of the time will be a problem. Probably a bit more tactical discipline needed as he moves up the levels. But he's 18 years old. And for an 18-year-old, you can't say anything bad about the lad. I, I think you, you move him carefully. And Francis Warren was adamant about that. But I think you move him carefully without being afraid to put him in harm's way. Because I think he's that sort of guy like he can cope if done properly. So I was, I'm happy for him. I, I think, you know, Dan and the rest of the coaching team who are working with him, doing a good job with him. So keep on keeping on. Really happy about that. Um, Sam Noakes. So always happy for, for my friends at iBox, Al, Eddie, Paul, all the guys there. Happy. You know, I'll be honest. I wasn't sold on Sam Noakes before. But I'm starting to see it now where you know, what's the point in teaching a kid to box if his instincts are to take you out? Just teach him to take people out. And as long as he can make adjustments to that approach, depending on what's in front of him, I don't see a problem. But for me, Sam Noakes, how do you put it? I've seen him do stuff. I've seen the videos of him working with Eddie Lamb. So I've seen what he does with Ed. And what I like about Sam Noakes is he takes that into the ring. A lot of people do pads and the body belt stuff in the gym and they never take it out on fight night. And when you're a trainer, you're like, I'm wasting my time here. It's why I don't do pad work with people unless I trust them to execute what I'm asking them to do. And so to see a lot of the stuff he was doing, so when he was throwing his right hand, shifting over, ending up being southpaw, that's all stuff he's been working on with Ed and he's executing it. So kudos to him. I know the kid Kartik that he fought wasn't all that, but he wasn't to know that until he hit him. You know, remember the end of the first round, man, he took his head clean off his shoulders. So in terms of Sam Noakes, I'm genuinely intrigued to see what you do with him next. To be honest, I'd work him in with a Gavin Gwynn this year. Why not? We're not particularly deep in, at the British level in terms of lightweights. So what's well, Craig Woodruff, Gavin Gwynn, Pat, the kid Padley's up there. And then you've got Galahad and Maxi Hughes, right? So I look at that and I go, well, do you put him in with Maxi Hughes? God, not yet. Do you put him in with Galahad? Nah, no, nowhere near. 
but the rest of them, yeah, comfortably. But he's not far off fighting the Maxi Hughes for me. Another year, year or so, why not fight Maxi Hughes? So yeah, I'm I'm high on that. Happy for Ed, happy for Al, happy for all of those guys. Um, what else happened on the card that we need to talk about? Let's talk about young Freezy McBones. Um, well, probably not so young now, but that is incredible. Now, I didn't see the whole broadcast, so I've had to kind of see the, the scraps of the performance, but he won on points. But the fact that he's made it to a Queensbury show is amazing. Like, I remember he posted a picture of where he grew up in Ghana, and I was like, that's an insane journey that he made from nothing to potentially whatever he can achieve. Oh, man, They're, those are the times you love boxing, right? Because he couldn't do that in football. You take up boxing at the age of 27. You can't turn up at Manchester United at 27 and say, I want to play. Turned up, took to boxing, did his thing, and now he's, he's now on Queensbury. But here's a paradox for me. I don't think he'll make the most money um, in his career from boxing. I genuinely think he's a guy who's smart enough to use boxing as a platform to something else. Ah, give it a year and a half, you're going to have freezy food. Freezy food is going to be what makes him a millionaire. Because the kid's got insane drive and he's not, he's not too proud to grift. And you've got to respect that. He's not too proud to put himself out there to make money. So I'm really, really happy for him. And I, I just think it's a good news story. Trained by Paul Strutt, who did all my amateur coaching courses. Got a lot of time for him. Um, former club mate of mine, Mike Harris, is also involved. So it's a, just a nice little circle there. And I'm just happy for the lad. Um, Michaela Mayer for Lucy Wildheart. Michaela Mayer is trash. Lucy Wildheart performed pretty well. Happy for her. Don't want to see Michaela Mayer in the British ring again. Don't see the point of Michaela Mayer. They're just determined to find a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl that they can hang boxing on. Because deep down, a lot of these promoters don't want to hang the sport on the shoulders of a lesbian. That's what this is about. They want to find a good, heterosexual, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl to hang the sport of boxing on. That's all this is. Michaela Mayer is meant to be that. Should it be a Baumgardner? Probably. Should it be a McCaskill? Probably. But it will be Michaela Mayer. We'll get Michaela Mayer forced down our throats until they find a way to make her connect. That's really all it's about. It's about having the right face to front women's boxing. And for me, it's not Michaela Mayer. She's just not good enough. Simple as that. Not good enough getting opportunities, in my opinion, that she doesn't deserve. I mean, sack her off and let her fight Terry Harper and loser leaves town. That's all. God, I've just taught myself out, man. This fasting's killing me, so my throat's dry. I can't carry on, unfortunately. What I will say is hopefully, you know, that's probably as comprehensive an insight as you can give into a night of boxing. I thought that card was really good. I think you've got to give Frank a pat on the back for that because that's the sort of card you want. Definitely three meaningful fights there, right? In terms of, you know, where Frank's taking his stable. So I, I enjoyed that. There was, a good, there was a good news story with Freezy. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, Michaela Mayer on there, unfortunately. So you had to have a bit of horror, didn't you? But yeah, I thought that was a really good card. Copper Box is a hell of a venue. I think it's the best venue to watch boxing in this country. I, people talk about York Hall. No, York Hall is terrible. People talk about the atmosphere in York Hall. York Hall is terrible. It is dog beep. It is horrible. It is trash. If 
if promoters could fill copper box more often, you'd have fights there. It's just purpose. It's purpose built for boxing. That's why you don't have. There isn't a bad seat in there. All the right amenities. Bit of a nightmare to get to and from, but it is what it is. Um. Yeah. So credit to Frank. Good to see all the Warrens out. Probably don't advise giving George the microphone. Like, why not let Francis talk? Um. Quite like Francis talking. Um. People that people the Warren organization should give the microphone to in order. Um. Francis, Alfie, Dev, George probably miss someone out but yeah George is a lovely guy by the way but I don't think George wants to be front and center the way that he is right now that's probably not his thing but listen those guys know what they're doing so who am I to say anything and on that note I'll say take care guys <laughs>